Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, what is going on, people? You know that sound. It is the Unfiltered Band. It means, yes, another episode of Unfiltered coming your way officially. So go down as episode 137 of Unfiltered. As we carry the Unfiltered Revolution along with you, you could jump on board at any time. And thank you, Unfiltered Band. And my Twitter at Casey Stern. Get in the bio. Hop on the YouTube channel. And, of course, that of Believe Networks, that B-L-E-A-V uh, you got to believe once coined many years ago and certainly many believers right now as the Mets are winning the offseason. So at least maybe that's making up a little bit for whatever was the ear scenario with Joe Musgrove, whether they did or did not blow the lead to the Atlanta Braves and much more. We'll discuss all of that and get into some all time acquisitions as we break down the list of the top 10 Best acquisitions in the offseason, the history of the Metropolitans, and getting help once again from a good friend of the show. Of course, uh, you can catch him uh, uh, mesmerized. As, uh, that's uh, mesmerized, M-E-T-S-M-E-R-I-Z-E-D. He, of course, Brian Wright. Brian Wright 86 is his Twitter handle, and he's back on board to help me break down this list and make sure that we do so accordingly. Hey, Brian, how are you, buddy? Doing great, Casey. How are you? Uh, well, you know, I, I can't really be better, can I? I you know, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I was saying to somebody this morning, I was on a station in San Diego, and I said, you know, the best way, and you tell me, to equate this to the feeling of a Met fan is the Seinfeld episode in which the opposite was the scenario, and George is sitting there and saying, you know, he normally orders the tuna, so he'll get the chicken salad, and then says to the woman, hi, my name is George, I'm I'm bald, uh, unemployed and I live with my parents. And she says, hi, uh, is it not a bizarre world right now as a Met fan living in this space with Steve Cohen? I mean, I mean, as recently as two, what was it? Two years ago, three years ago. I mean, our, the Mets biggest offseason acquisitions was Rick Porcello and Michael Walker and replace that with Justin Verlander and Kodai Senga or, you know, Jose Quintana or whoever you also want to put in there. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, just as recently as two years ago before Steve Cohen, I mean, it was a whole new world or three years ago um, where we were just like, you know, if Jacob, DeGrom, if Jacob DeGrom left a person, a player or a player of Jacob DeGrom's caliber, um, which there hasn't been really any in since Tom Seaver, um, you know, pre-Steve Cohen, we would have been, oh, oh, you know, we will just, we'll be fine without him. And then we, but we won't replace him really. Um, you know, it took what, 48 hours for the Mets to basically replace him. And in my opinion, in about eight days, make the rotation actually better. Yeah, look, they're the best rotation in baseball. They got the best closer in baseball. You got the highest payroll in baseball. So, uh, yeah, great expectations. That book, uh, you might have to exponentially multiply that by, like, I don't know, uh, $400 million, uh, based on the payroll and the tax and Steve Cohen laughing at all of that. Uh, we are not taxed here, but we are presented by our good friends at Bet Online. And basketball is back. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You get into the read, Brian, however you can get into the read. Find the latest odds, team matchup, info, player news, and game trends at Bet 
Bet Online, your continued source for all your sports wagering information. Bet Online's got live betting, free contests, giveaways all season long. It's always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events. NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, even golf. It's simple. Head over to betonline.ag. That's betonline.ag to join. Get your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use the promo code BELIEVE, that's B L E A V, to receive your rewards. It's BetOnline where the game starts. And I want to get started here and and say this, because we're going to get into the list of our top 10 off-season acquisitions. This is difficult to compile for a lot of reasons, especially, and I want to get into this and net this at the beginning, because of players that are currently in the midst of their Mets careers. So just an aside for those waiting for Justin Verlander, you know, while we do tribute videos now for players before they even play, and his career is the likes of Mike Piazza, the Marlin right now, uh, you know, minus a couple of games. We're not putting Verlander in there yet. We're not putting Kodasanga in there yet. But we are going to have current players. How difficult is it for you, as I know it is for me, and what is the most difficult part about trying to then portray current players in the midst of this, Brian, against guys who have already the totality of their Mets career in place? Yeah, as you said, it's really challenging, but it's worth noting. And I think it's, it's you know, look, the Mets have not had a lot of great offseason acquisitions um, in this, you know, in the period of free agency, which is, you know, stretches back uh, almost 50 years. So it's, hard it's hard to like put him in there but at the same time you kind of have to and it you know the two criteria you kind of base it on is how they performed which for the current players is you know still pending um you don't want to like just assume that they'll be great in the next few years uh you'd like to like think they would be uh but the other criteria is you know kind of the after effect or kind of the the ripple effect or or really what it did to change to transform an organization and i think for a couple of these especially as far as the current ones are concerned really have done that already um i think even you know some like in the moment and and certainly afterwards and i think even after they stop playing for the mets will have that effect so i think that to me is the probably the more significant criteria for how they get on this list yeah, and Brian, that's important to point out because you know, I don't want to give away names yet, but there are a couple of specific players in here where it's like, okay, did they net even, you know, in one case, getting to a World Series? No. Winning a World Series? No. But when you could take the Mets from a business standpoint and a relevant standpoint from irrelevant and nobody cares and the Met fan isn't going to Shea at the time or City Field now to all of a sudden, whether it's every five days for a pitcher or every day for a position player, they're on the map. Free agents consider them more viable. The team is more viable as a winner. Consistently, they're a postseason contender where they were not. That's where those things come into place. And I think certainly in a couple of these instances, that is something that we look at. The other part that's interesting before we get into this list is that when you look at some of these players, their stories changed as their careers went on. I mean, look, we mentioned current players, Edwin Diaz, who we'll get to at some point on this list, would not be somebody after the first year, after that trade, with Cano involved, that would be on this list. Fair to say, Brian, people would have him on the list of maybe the part of the worst acquisitions and worst trades and worst moves that the Mets had ever made. That's what's always fascinating to me as you look through the timeline and we go through these players is how those chapters are written. Because going back to why is it easier when it's over? Because in the midst of it, these stories change very quickly based on what the player does and based on what the team does with the players on them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll get into Edwin Diaz, but I mean, no one can say that they their thoughts about Edwin Diaz it did not change over, over the last three years. 
Yeah, I would say so. Uh, let's get to the list again. Top 10 offseason acquisitions. You could tweet us. Tweet Brian at BrianWright86. Tweet me at Casey Stern and let us know after we post this, whether you're uh, watching it on YouTube or listening, Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get podcasts, your thoughts on the list is there's always going to be debate. And I have somewhere, and I'm going to get into this with you, where it's like, okay, I'm comfortable, and then what about this? And hence the debate. There's no debate that one of, and among certainly many, but specifically there are a couple of plays and a specific catch in which number 10 is mentioned often in terms of the greatest moments in Mets history. And a lot of younger Mets fans may not know about Tommy Agee and hear about him when it comes to old timers, but don't understand the acquisition that he was. Why is he the right fit, Brian, at number 10? Yeah, um, so he was the American League Rookie of the Year in 1966 with the White Sox, and then Chicago dealt dealt him after the 67 season. And, you know, that was 69 Mets. That was a team that relied so much on on defense. Um, And Tommy Agee, of course, you talked about the catches in the World Series and Game 3 of the World Series. I mean, that is, you know, his defining moment. That's one of the defining moments of of the Miracle Mets. Ag's first season was a real struggle, but he figured it out um, by 1969. And aside from Cleon Jones, was the best everyday player. Um, that was a team that, that had a lot of platooning, so so he was really an, an everyday player. And, and you know, could argue was the best when you combine his fielding and, and his hitting. Um, you know, that game three of the 69 World Series, he basically won on his own. He made two catches that saved five runs, and he hit a home run, and they won five nothing. So it's like. Maybe he won that game by himself. Uh, but the the added bonus of that trade uh, after 67 was they got Al Weiss as well. And Al Weiss hit over 400 in that World Series and homered in game five to tie that game with the Orioles. Of course, they eventually won. And that was his only home run at Shea that entire season. So a nice little bonus uh, to a deal. That, or, when that the time was right. When the time was yeah. right. Yeah, it's amazing, too, when you talk about Tommy Agee and you mentioned his first year. This is the case for a lot of players in New York, and this is not just a Met thing, even though this is a Met episode that we're doing here, because you could think about the Tino Martinez's when he took over for Adam Mattingly, and there are a lot of these kind of scenarios when you come to a big city and you're from a smaller market and you have issues. But I'm looking at our list without giving it away. I see right off the bat at least four names who had bad first years with the Mets and who after their first year would have been nowhere near a list, would have been in a bust list. And Mm -hmm. that's something to remember. Now, you don't have that kind of luxury with Justin Verlander or even a Senga who's on a five-year deal because of the importance of 2023. But it is something to remember and at least be fearful of if you're a Mets fan that a lot of guys do have a little bit of an issue. Now, for Pedro Martinez, who's at number nine, his biggest issue at the time was he was not even offered, and I've talked to him about this many times, not even offered a multi-year deal by the Red Sox. It was an odd scenario after what played out in 2004 in which Kurt Schilling had really kind of overshadowed him as the ace of that team, but Pedro was still a big part of that run, and certainly we know about Grady Little and whatnot in 2003. I've talked about this signing I don't even know how many times, especially many, many times privately and publicly with Jim Duquette, who I worked with for years, who was in that front office. And I have said that this is the most underrated signing of my lifetime with the New York Mets. A four-year deal, was it 54 or 64? I can't even remember. It was, it's, I think maybe 54 million or 64 million. The amount of money, Brian, that they made from Pedro Martinez in terms of what he did bringing people back into the building, not only every five days, but the attention that he grabbed and giving them a franchise face, the fact that Carlos Beltran and others are never on this team, not even talking to this team about deals without Pedro Martinez. 
How underrated do you think it is the time period and the tenure of Pedro Martinez with the Mets? I think it's underrated. And, and to pull back the curtain, we even talked about this offline. I'm, I would be totally happy to move this up uh, on the list. So like nine, it's, it's, it's kind of fluid. But I mean, this is, this is really an underrated deal. And it's more about what he, what the effect of his signing was as opposed to what he did for the Mets. You know, he was a, you know, this might sound familiar, three-time Cy Young winner who's on the back end of his career that the Mets bring in for the sake of what could be, you know, happening uh, later on in terms of other signings um, and more so for Pedro, as you said, like ticket sales and people, you know, actually wanting to come to Shea Stadium after three pretty miserable seasons, 02 through through 04. Um, you know, as we found out, Pedro did basically had one really good year left in 2000. 2005 was a really good year. Yeah, he's very uh, good. Very good. Yeah. And 2006, he just he was not the same, got hurt, missed the playoffs. You know, who knows what Pedro Martinez in the postseason would have done for the Mets. I just hard for me to think about that. Um, but as you said, what it, what made it really important was that it was the first signing for Omar Minaya in, in his first offseason, set the stage for recruiting, you know, Carlos Beltran not too long later. Uh, that was a big that was the big fish of the And that doesn't happen, Brian, people. without Pedro. I mean, no. Beltron yeah. has said that 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 does that that meeting, which was what around Thanksgiving or whatever they when they said uh, I've heard that story many times where they wouldn't leave his house, right? When they went down to Puerto Rico, all of that, that does not happen without Pedro having preceded it. Yeah, and I and I wonder if Carlos Delgado comes in a trade uh the next offseason. So um really set the stage for the two thousand six Mets, uh, you know, as much as disappointing as it was to not get to the World Series, uh, I don't think that team would have been the same without Pedro Martinez coming in and Beltran and, and Delgado. And he brought back, you know, he brought a, a swag that that team didn't have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in when I think of moves in, you know, and I'm in my mid-40s, but in my lifetime as a Met fan that have, because look, even, you know, and I don't want to give away some of the names, but if anybody doesn't think we have Gary Carter on this list, really, that you're not a Met fan, you're just, which is okay. We're happy to have you watch the show and listen to it, but you're just not. Um, but there were certain moves that were made, like with the kid, when they were already a presence and you could already feel the team, and that was a huge push me over. There are certain moves where the Mets were literally, they were like invisible. They weren't even relevant. They were a laughing stock, and it brought them back. And Pedro Martinez and Mike Piazza, right, which is something that's not on this list because not an offseason. But those two moves were the ones that, right, that stand out to me were they were the biggest game changers, I think, of any during my lifetime. Brian, would you say the same? I would say so. I I didn't think that we're going to get you know get to another another player. We I guess we we had mentioned. I didn't think the Mets were capable of getting someone like Pedro Martinez, even though you know his best years were behind him. I'm sure like, oh, Pedro Martinez that'll never happen, and then he'll never take their money. Does. Yeah, yeah, and then it does, and you're going, oh my goodness! Like now, my whole vision or my whole perception of the Mets has changed. I think that. That was the same for not only other fans of the Mets, but other teams around the league. When our number eight, Edwin Diaz, came to the Mets, this was a situation where he had already put together 50 save season, already been as good a closer as you could be, and we thought put up unbelievable strikeout numbers because we didn't know the historic season he just had was possible. 
and had done all these things. But this was about taking Robinson Cano and Robinson Cano's money. And then Edwin Diaz was kind of on the other side of that. And when Cano went south and that became a disaster and Edwin Diaz was hitting batters, couldn't find the fastball, slider happy, all the issues he's on that first year and looked afraid coming from Seattle. This to me on, on a different list would be as big a turnaround and it's no disrespect at all. Look, the Carlos Beltran thing, the first year was rough. Lindor, lesser, but the first year was rough. There have been a few of those. You mentioned Tommy Agee. There have been a lot of them, right, that have had issues because it is a difference and a change coming to New York. But I think this is the greatest turnaround we've ever experienced in terms of what he was looked at at the end of that first year and what he's looked at now because when he just signed that five-year deal, which for a closer is crazy money, and the Mets had to do it, and they gave him a fourth and fifth year, Brian, that the Mets don't want to give, but they had to do. I don't think I saw one Met fan have a problem with it. Can you imagine going back in the DeLorean and telling Edwin Diaz's fans, Met fans, during that first season that, hey, don't worry, you're going to give him 100 mil over five years and you're all going to love it, you would have thought I was certifiably nuts. Exactly. I mean, I would have said, how is that even remotely possible? And, you know, you know, and you're signing him, what, he's 29? I mean, you know, five years is a little long, but you had, as you said, you had to do it. To do um, so he has, he has, you would think, good great years left years, you know, it's hard to expect what he did last year. Um, but he has great years left um, to be the closer, especially at this time where it's when it's a win now situation. I think it gets, this deal gets a deduction because it included, you know, the Robinson Cano albatross. Um, and that's why it's lower. That's why it's where it is yeah. on the list. Yes. Yeah. And, and who knows how, you know, Jared Kelnick turns out. I, you know, at this mo this moment, looking like a, a great decision in hindsight. Um, it's it's. I would just, you know, even if Jared Kelnick would would be the next Mike Trout, if Edwin Diaz was the way he is, I'd still say, okay, great move because you're in a win now situation. So, yeah, it really took one incredible season to to, to turn around everyone because I think even before at the beginning of last year, I don't think ever not everyone was convinced that Edwin be closer because even the 2021, he was still he was pretty good. Um, and was showing signs that he he was improving, not to the level that we thought of, of last year, but um, but yeah, I mean this could this could turn. I mean this has turned all the way around, and who knows what happens, you know, in the next couple of years, especially with with the Mets as a whole. But um, you know, you know, it's been a World Series. No one no one remembers Robinson Cano. I don't think no one remembers Jared Kelnick. It's it's all forgotten. Yeah, and Jared Kelnick, to be honest, is looking like another one of the 75,000 seemingly met failures that we've seen in terms of prospects as we bring up the Alex Escobars and Alex Ochoas and I don't even know how many guys, whether in their own organization or they brought over and were darlings and ended up being much less than that and nothing close to the Ron darling. Uh, but I think, you know, when you look at Diaz, the confidence change is the biggest thing. And that's what's so amazing because he's, you know, he's eating up being in New York right now. And he's he's on the stage and owning it. And that's to me, look, the talent was always there, but that's really the surprising. I don't even think the Carlos Beltran didn't even, even though he was able to come and turn his career around and after the first year, year plus, because he was getting booed eight games into the second season, have a great Met career. You didn't really see him, you know, visibly eating alive kind of that moment the way that a Diaz does. This is like going from a guy who looked like he was shy and afraid, and and he's uncoiled into a guy who, to me, is 
as much the spotlight in New York you trust will succeed guy as there is on this roster. That's, to me, the craziest part about the Edwin Diaz story so far, is that confidence. Yeah, I mean, I would remember in 2019, you could almost feel like happened you were like oh you were your life and barely had any kind of shaky moments but even i'm, I'm thinking of the team that for canada home run where he out i think run may have given a fly ball to the track they would have in that 2019 it was as would have voted and the game was held uh yeah but like it may not have been Yeah, look, I think when you look at this situation so far with what Diaz has done, if it continues, this is going to be a guy who will be higher on this list. Again, currently in the midst of it, it's more difficult to try and break down. Number 10, all-time acquisitions in an offseason Mets, Tommy Agee. Number 9, Pedro Martinez. Number 8, Edwin Diaz. Number 7 is Max Scherzer. And to me, the thing that stands out about Max, and look, I, I understand there are going to be people who are not going to like this because at the end of last season, what happened? What happened against Atlanta? What happened against San Diego? And because part of this is going to be, hey, look at that money. You've got to perform at the highest level when we need you most. And I think when you look at the Max Scherzer situation, that's a fair assessment. However, this is one where even at that money, I'll go back to something you said about Pedro. You never thought he'd be a Met. There's no way, Brian, that I ever would have thought Max Scherzer was taking Mets money. Even if you told me he was paying $130 million over three, it wouldn't matter. There's no way there's somebody else. Max Scherzer is not going to accept being a Met because the Mets met because the Mets were a laughing stock because he played against them with the Nationals and beat them all the time. How much of him being there on this list at number seven is about like some of these other moves like Pedro. I'll use that as an example, kind of resurfacing this idea that the Mets can be a winner and can house yeses for free agents when they're making their decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has a, this has a lot to do with, with that. I mean, I, yeah, as you said, I, it's funny. Like I, can remember it was like the week weekend after Thanksgiving, like maybe the Saturday. It was like, oh, Max Scherzer might consider the Mets. And you're like, okay, that's not happening. I mean, I remember saying like out loud, that's not happening. How is that going to happen? And about 48 hours later, he's a Met. And I'm like, I don't know how that happened. Like, how did that change? And it changed. It really changed the. You know, like realign your compass if you're a fan. Like, wait, we can do this now. Oh my goodness. And it it and and it really has opened up i think are the possibilities within reason i mean you don't think by every player but now you can go after um the the biggest names uh in the free agent uh free agent pool so um i think we'll look back at this as a landmark moment um in you know especially in the steve cohen era just like in completely changing um the attitude and the perception of the team and and, and look measures are provided that attitude and leadership completely different clubhouse than it was in 2021 yeah the season not end well i mean he, you know you pay him money to pitch in big games and the game he did not pitch well um we're it's still you know room to be seen two years left on the contract um you know obviously a world series just probably shoot this right right to the top um but 
for what it does not only in the next couple of years, you know, not only this year with Verlander, but the next year then and beyond, um, I think has just really set the tone for, for the Mets as free agent players for, for years to come. Yeah, there's no Verlander if Scherzer's not on this team. And they're mm-hmm. not changing the culture with Buck alone. And no offense to Mark Canna, but Scherzer a huge part of that. And, you know, he, he made everyone believe be, because of, how much everybody recognizes, look, and it is money and the Scott Boris and all of that, but Max Scherzer wants to win. And when a guy who is destined to basically every year be mad at himself if he gives up even a run, that's how much of a guy he wants to just win it all. When he says that's a team that can do this, that is something that made a statement, I think, to everybody. One of the big reasons why Max Scherzer is at number seven. So you got AG at 10, Pedro at nine, Edwin uh, Sugar Diaz at eight, Max at seven. And here's Johan Santana at number six. And this is one that I I kind of put a spotlight on to get into today that is it's it's difficult to read. Is this the right spot? And I'm okay with it at six. Should he be behind a couple of other guys? People look at because there's a number of things with Johan. Number one, he's criminally underrated for what he did in his career because of what happened with the shoulder and what happened with his injury. And that goes for not only him as a Met, but him as a twin. I mean, even more so as a twin, because when he was with the, with the twins, I mean, he was the best pitcher in the sport. Nobody was paying attention to him because he was in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. He was not at that level necessarily with the Mets. But you look at his numbers and what he did. And again, a guy who was a game changer when he came in, in terms of making the big signing, he was the top guy who was out there in the market when they signed him. I think it was $137 million maybe. When he, when he signed that paper, the best guy in the world who was available decided to be a Met. And again, things from there change for our number six with Johan Santana. And it wasn't the same, like that, you know, it wasn't like Pedro where it was like three years of, you know, being a laughing stock, uh, like an, an almost a last place team or a last place team. And this kind of, and changing everything. It was coming off 2007, the collapse. Um, so they needed some kind of, you know, cleanser. Uh, in a sense, uh, like Verlander and Senga just were for this offseason, right? Yeah, yeah, you're, something like you're, that. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, I forgot about you know the, how the last season ended um, yes. for t- temporarily. So yeah, the yeah. Mets need to make some big move, and this was the biggest. Um, and I think if I remember, it was a trade. It was you know Carlos Gomez. I think was went to among others went to Minnesota. I think they like required a contract extension mm-hmm. on top of that. I think yes, they made that yeah, happen. I think it was 137 um, million. Yes, yeah. Um, so yeah, and I think he gets, everyone remembers the, the no hitter. So it's, it's not like the people forget, you know, Santana, but I think he was underrated, um, because I mean, he was aside from 2008, I mean, he was, he was rarely if ever healthy or he just had a bad team behind him and 2000, you know, that no hitter in 2012 was one of his last healthy starts. Who knows if he got pushed too long, uh, that'll be debated forever. Um, and, and then some people think he didn't satisfy expectations but that's again product of poor health his shoulder he didn't he wasn't playing on a good team after their 2008 uh 2008 he when he did have a good team and when he was pretty much healthy he was a Cy Young contender um had that phenomenal start if you remember on a bad knee game 161 they had to win in order to stay in the division race with the Phillies pitched a complete game second to last game at Shea Stadium um you know that's the game I honestly obviously no I that's really the game I remember for, for Johan Santana, where he wanted the ball and he pitched like the great pitcher he was in Minnesota. Um, so it didn't go as planned, but I, I, it was better than most of us, than I think most fans give him credit for. 
when you win a World Series, you are always going to be remembered, and the teams and, and the players are you know immortalized forever. That's just the way that it is. But even within those teams, there are kind of not forgotten, but these underrated players that seemingly don't get discussed enough when you have stars. So when you talk about the 86 Mets and you think about all that could have or might have been, you still talk about Keith Hernandez and Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden and Ron Darling and even Lenny Dykstra because of the presence that he had and be Mookie Wilson because of the play with the Bill Buckner and a million other things. And then our number five at Bobby O, Bobby Ojeda kind of gets mentioned and you remember, oh yeah, those starts in that postseason run. Oh, yeah, how consistent he was during the course of that year where people don't realize and go back to the numbers of what he did after he came on. And then as he continued on, because, look, we all know what didn't didn't happen in 88 and so on and so forth. But when people think about Ron Darling and Dwight Gooden, they they kind of almost go to sit and think about, honestly, like when Mm -hmm. they think about underrated and in the Swiss cheese there somewhere is a Bobby O who we've got at number five in terms of all time offseason acquisitions for the Mets. Yeah, and I think in, you know, after 85, there weren't many holes on the Mets, but probably the the biggest, if the, it was a, like a back-end rotation guy, specifically a left-handed starter, and probably he'd have filled that. Um, they got him from the Red Sox. Um, so not only did he, not only was he not a back-end rotation, he was like top of the rotation, uh, arguably the best pitcher on that team with Darling, Fernandez, and Dwight Gooden. Um, and you had mentioned... Had some great postseason starts. Game two of the NLCS, uh, I think the complete game. Game three of the World Series, unless they're down by, you know, down 0-2 in Boston. Uh, pitches a great game. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's a shame. 80-70 got hurt. 88, he had the off-the-field, you know, garden hedge incident that took him out of the postseason, and who knows what would have happened against the Dodgers there. Um, so, 86 was really his, his, his only real healthy season when he could really uh, – you know, perform up to uh, beyond what he was really capable of. Um, and it's, you know, we, you talk about the Tommy Agee deal, also got Alloys. The Bob Ojeda deal, who goes to the Red Sox in the exchange? Calvin Chiraldi, who was on the mound for the Mets, much of the Mets World Series comeback in game six and continued his meltdown in game seven to allow the go-ahead runs. You know, we, we talked about, like, for example, with Santana, you know, guys who get traded over, and then they make that decision to stay because there's never a guarantee and some are rentals and some have a couple of years left. And look, the Padres are living in this world now with Juan Soto, right, where they don't know what's going to happen to him in two years. Number four, Francisco Lindor is the greatest shortstop the Mets have ever had. And that is where I lead with him because I don't think that people realize that and this franchise has had an exorbitant amount of great pitchers. This franchise has had catchers for sure. And we discussed them when we got into our list last time with Carter and Piazza, certainly at the forefront of that, but they've had others, right? They get on, that get forgotten. They've had first baseman. They've had third baseman. Yeah. I mean, you think about just in one time period, having Ray Knight and then the criminally underrated Howard Johnson, who we had at number one on that list. We did a couple of months ago, but that's not this position. Because that's Rafael Santana and Bud Harrelson and Kevin Elster. And you can go to Kurt Abbott, who was in a World Series, or Mike Bordick, who homered in the first game. I remember after he came over there. Or all the other names in the Ray Ordonez is the world and whatnot. He's the best shortstop the Mets have ever had. And he's our number four as the fourth best acquisition already that they ever made in an offseason. Why is that the right place for him? 
Yeah, I think it's it's both because he's now the best shortstop in Mets history. Um, you know, just probably better than Jose Reyes. The first landmark deal of the Steve Cohen era, when Steve Cohen really took over, did not have a lot of time to make the kind of moves that he's making now. Um, so the kind of this first landmark deal was this trade uh, with Cleveland. Um, it really worked out for both sides, if you think about it, with yes, Rosario it and Jimenez going to the going to a playoff team in Cleveland. Um, the Mets getting not only Lindor, but also Carlos Carrasco. Um, Lindor's first season, we had talked about first seasons in New York. You know, they sometimes don't go as well as you plan, and Lindor's is, is no different. Um, I, you know, I, but I think back to that season when he got hurt in July, and I know DeGrom also went down around the same time. But when he, and, and by July, he was playing pretty well. The time that he missed was the time that the Mets season just completely went downhill. I don't I don't think that was a coincidence. Uh, him being on the field every day was was very important. And then last season, you know, I think he was the most valuable Met, more so than than Pete Alonso. For should have been a Gold Glove. Ca- should have been a Gold Glove candidate too. Yeah, sure. A year ago. Yeah, I think when you take into account his Lindor's, you know, offense, his defense up the middle, like you said, Gold Glove, Gold Glove should have been Gold Glove, and his leadership. Uh, I think he was. He was, he's the most important Met and, um, you know, as far as everyday players going forward, uh, it was a precursor to Scherzer, but it was also a signal that, that they, they would be players for big names. It was a trade. So it's not the same thing as, as getting a free agent. Um, but also the fact that they had to extend him to that you know, mega deal, uh, 10, it, you know, the Mets hadn't handed out many 10 year deals. I don't think, and maybe not any, if I, if I recall, I don't um, think any. yeah, I think that was the first. So I, you know, I think it'll ultimately be a positive. I don't like to make, you know, rank stuff in just like thinking ahead, but I, you know, Lindor is a long-term, you know, fig- fixture on the Mets. And I think there'll be more postseason runs with him and on, on board. So uh, that's why I have him this high. You got to give him a lot of credit because I thought in year one, what really surprised me more than anything else and in covering it for years and knowing people and a lot of people around where Tito was in Cleveland, his leadership skills seemed to diminish when he came to the Mets. He was affected mm-hmm. by a lot of his struggles. The situation with Javi Baez and getting those two together was not a good one. Uh, the, you had the McNeil situation with the raccoon where clearly, you know, Francisco Lindor was, you know, giving McNeil a lot of crap and, you know, Jeff rubs a lot of guys the wrong way, but Lindor was handling it publicly in a way you shouldn't. And, doing all the things that were kind of the antithesis of what you had heard from how he was every day in Cleveland. I think he put the onus on himself and really went into the off season and handled himself. Right. I do think it helped that Max Scherzer took some pressure off of him, having to feel like the only guy leading the team, Buck Showalter took pressure on him because there was a leader in place. Right. So he didn't have to feel all of that pressure, but I give him a lot of credit and I'm with you on Lindor. And again, you, you look at the money that just got handed out to Bogarts and to Trey Turner and the importance of the shortstop yeah. position. That's your captain. You don't need to see to be there on the field. And that's the guy who plays every day. And that's who he is for the Mets. Number 10, Tommy Agee. Number nine, Pedro. Eight, Edwin Diaz. Seven, Max Scherzer. Six, Johan Santana. Five, Bobby O. That's Bobby Ojeda. Number four is Francisco Lindor. And we sit and continue our list of the top 10 acquisitions. And I like where you went here for number three with Gil Gil Hodges from a managing standpoint. And I want to ask you about this because and take a quick pause because I wrote this down to ask you, did you consider Buck even after one year? Is he 
if they get to a World Series, right? Can't you make a case somewhere in the back of this top 10 that we should be bumping guys down and, and having the acquisition of Buck in here coming off of Callaway, coming off of all that? I wanted to ask you about that because I don't think it's ready now after one season, but I do think, and you tell me, even though it's, it's hard to quantify, Brian, clearly, right? Yeah. I think that the biggest culture change they've had, if you were to look at Lindor and, and look at Scherzer, I think Buck's even bigger than both of those because of how long it seemed like the credibility was questioned because of the guy who was in front of the microphone at these press conferences, and Buck just seemed to clear all that out of the way on day one. Yeah, I will say I did not consider uh, hirings. This is, this is maybe we're just parsing. Sure, words. no, no, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just yeah. asking. Yeah, I'm just asking. Yeah, no, it's a great point because, like, in in the terms of Gil Hodges, um, that was a trade yeah, to hire, right. I guess you could right, say. Right, right, so yes, kind of yeah. Weird, yeah. But no, I mean, I mean, but you talk about Buck Showalter changing kind of the the culture. I mean, I um, after what they had, you know, Luis Rojas is a great guy, but was just not ready to be Correct. a manager, which kind of put in a, a exactly. difficult situation. Exactly. Um, Callaway was a disaster um, it, in more ways than, 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 you know, just on the field. Um, you know, I, I'm already forgetting who's before. I mean, Terry Collins. Right, Terry, but Terry Collins. Collins was, but was he's like, an exception. He, he, I mean, really, it's Davey Johnson. To, in terms of, like, the recent Mets last two, three days, Davey Johnson, Terry Collins, Buck Showalter, and Buck in there after one year. That's how many, you know, yeah. Jeff Torborgs and, and all the others that they've had. So, you know, it, it's part of why the Hodges thing stands out. And talk about that. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take away, but it is it is interesting because we don't think about, when we think of acquisitions, right? Mm -hmm. We don't think about the hires. And we look, I mean, we can make a case Steve Cohen's going to end up the most important acquisition, quote unquote, that the Mets have ever had, right? Mm -hmm. On any list. Yeah. But when you look at Gil Hodges, and it's so good to see over the years, even though it took a while, the importance that's been placed next to his name and the understanding and respect now, Brian, that's been placed next to his name. Just what did that do for this franchise when he gets brought in to manage? I mean, it, it is a transformative move. I mean, it was, it gets forgotten because it, you know, it's a trade. Um, like when we talk about like trades or free agent signings, it was a trade for a manager, which is just, you know, kind of unusual. Um, the, he was the senators, Washington senators manager at the time, and the team had improved. Uh, but they agreed to send him to New York, I think for uh, for like a hundred thousand dollars. And uh, Bill Dennehy was a, a pitcher. Um, and the, you know, the impact on the '69 Mets can't be understated. I mean, when you talk about when Tom Seaver spoke about Gil Hodges, when Jerry Kuzman, Cleon Jones, Bud Harrelson, they talk about Gil Hodges. It's like reverential. It's like he changed everything. Um, he has, like they had an, it had an effect on. It. I mean, it had an effect on Tom Seaver. Um, I mean, even like when his Hall of Fame speech uh, mentioned how important he was. Um, so it's it's it, him coming is him coming to the Mets is right up there with alongside Tom Seaver's arrival in 1967, um, and just a turning point from the team being a laughing stock to the team being respected and of course a world champion in 1969. And it's it's unfortunate because who knows what could have happened um, because. You know, a couple of years later, uh, unfortunately, passed away uh, due to a heart attack. Um, so who knows what it could have led to later on. But at least for 69, um, just really just just 
really the Mets could not have won with any other manager than Gil Hodges in 1969. It changed the way everything was handled, changed the way everything looked in the franchise, and there are certain coaches and managers who do that for franchises, and it's almost a before and after picture when you look in the lore of what that franchise is. Gil Hodges fits in that at number three. Number two is a guy we had at the top of our list the last time, uh, right under, I think we had him at, do we have him at two, or I think right under Hojo, right? Right? Uh, when you think about still somehow underrated, uh, yet not to you and I. So here we go, staying consistent, because here at number two is Carlos Beltran, who, uh, you know, I, this doesn't happen without the Pedro move at number nine, which we have, which is why that's on this list and could even be higher. You know, Carlos Beltran was in a situation where he was coming off the eight home runs in the postseason in Houston. The time before that, before he was traded, was in Kansas City. Those changes from six beat reporters to six in your face and then the other 6,000 that seemingly are waiting behind, it, it netted a pretty bad first year for Carlos Beltran. And I remember even eight games into year two, he was getting booed at home and you wondered, is this ever going to change? A lot of people remember the at-bat against Adam Wainwright. Nobody was going to hit that pitch. Should he have swung? They don't think about it. And Cliffy will be the first to tell you his at-bat before that or any of the ones where, by the way, after, you know, the, the situation with Andy and the catch, bottom of that inning, Valentin and Andy Chavez had chances to drive in runs, and they don't do it. But everybody remembers nothing except just you know, two things, Aaron Howman and Yadier Molina and the fact that Carlos Beltran didn't, didn't you know, swing. Aaron Howman not on this list. Carlos Beltran is. Why does he belong here at number two? Uh, first of all, you gave me flashbacks to 2006. I, I'm, I'm a little bit Oh, I remember. Can you tell I remember it like it's yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> I remember you were saying, like, after the ending catch, oh, God, the bottom of the ending, they should have scored. It. I forget. They had that was it. Andy, Andy would have been, uh, from the strength to be here, yeah. Andy Chavez would have been, like, the, the most remembered Met in the history of all time for people our age because he had a chance to drive in a run in the bottom of the inning in which he had made that catch. And people forget that. And they stranded two runners, and it didn't happen. And, and here we are now all these years later. All right, go ahead on Beltran. Huh, okay. All right. Uh, therapy session's over. Uh, yeah. No, um, we, this is going to repeat a lot of what we talked about in the underrated podcast. But, um, you yeah, know, he finished his Mets career, what was like a, a 129 OPS. I mean, won three gold, fantastic center fielder, the best center fielder in Mets history. Um, I, yeah, it's just – it's he it, – it was just a game changer again uh, after the Pedro deal um, because it was, you know, it, it was the next stepping stone toward getting to really building uh, a, a championship level team with Carlos Delgado coming in the next year. Um, and then you have Wright and Reyes and, you know, after 06, um, you know, he, he was still just, you know, a top level player, um, all-star games, gold gloves, um, you know, it's it's that one at bat that gets remembered. I think it's sort of, you know, dwindling in terms of uh, that being sticking out for everyone. Um, but it's hard to not put like the best center fielder in Mets history um, and not put him high on this list when you talk about greatest acquisitions. Um, yeah, look, it, 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 yeah. and and consistency too, Brian. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. the thing that that gets forgotten is just how good he was for so long. And mm-hmm. a switch hitter and a guy who got big hits and hit big home runs like the one against the Phillies and so many during those runs. Now, look, this is how things change. They don't collapse in 2007 and they end up winning. Then nobody cares about what happened in 2006 and the fact that right these things, they don't get changed. But one thing that I think we need to change and hopefully we're, we're doing here the last couple episodes we've done together is this narrative of, of really what Carlos Beltran was. 
because no matter how John Miller, whether it's Beltron or Beltron, either way, we're talking about one of the best Mets of all time. And in terms of position players, you're talking about the list is pretty much what? I mean, you got you Mike Piazza and you want right. to put David Wright and then you got Carlos Beltron. And then you talk about our, you know, consistency. 06, he had 116 RBIs. 07, 112. 08, 112. And then 2009, he was hurt. So three healthy seasons getting over 110 RBIs. And and in big spots, too. And when we talk about mm-hmm. big spots and we think about big acquisitions, you know, we mentioned we've had different scenarios. We had guys who have brought the Mets back on the map. And then the ones that you remember the most, like they will with with it doesn't matter who it is down here in Atlanta where I live, Jorge Soler is never going to have to pay for any food down here because of what happened at the trade deadline and what he does becoming an MVP in a, in a World Series and the Jack Petersons of the world. But for a Met fan, when you think about acquisitions at 10, Tommy Agee and nine, Pedro and eight, Edwin Diaz and seven, Max Scherzer, six, Johan, five, Bobby Ojeda, four, Frankie Lindor, three, Gil Hodges to manage. Number two, Carlos Beltran. There's no doubt that number one is the kid in Gary Carter. And that 86, no, look, especially for people that are you know, my age and sitting here in my mid forties, I mean, look, you know, the, the 69 Mets and the 73 Mets I've learned about as a kid have, have learned and grown reverence for because of how much you love the franchise, but I didn't live those moments, but I did live all my first moments as a kid with those eighties Mets and with Dwight Gooden and all the K's and going to Shea stadium. And we don't get the one world series that turned it from what might've been, which it is now, to disaster, which it would have been if they didn't even win one. They don't get that without this acquisition at number one in Gary Carter. Yeah, it, you know, we had mentioned like Ojeda, you get extra credit if it ultimately leads to a World Series, whether you had an influence on it or not. Gary Carter certainly had an influence uh, on the world, on winning the World Series. And that's why it goes at the top. I mean, so many moves and draft picks went into making the 86 Mets what they became. Uh, the you know the the mid eighties Mets, uh, the trade for Keith Hernandez is the best trade the Mets ever made. Doing it at the dead, trade deadline in eighty three, um, but Carter's what really put it over the top. I mean, that was the glaring need after eighty four was a hit a catcher who could you know hit you know decently, and they didn't have that. And then when they got Gary Carter from the Expos, they went from having no real good catcher to having the best catcher. Um, you know, not only was he a fantastic hitter, but he was, you know, a pitch caller, and he managed that young pitching staff with Gooden, with Darling, with Fernandez, uh, exceptionally well. Uh, 85 was tremendous. Uh, it was exceptionally hot in September, um, but they ultimately came up short in the Cardinals. 86 was really his last great year, but, you know, it ended the way uh, everyone uh, hoped it would. So when you look back, despite getting just two great years out of Carter, I mean, I know he was an all-star in 87, 88, but those were just kind of to me, ceremonial, um, really getting two great years at Carter. It was definitely worth it because, you know, the result matched what the intent of the trade was. This move does not get made. That team doesn't win. And if that team doesn't win, we don't have 86 to fall back on. It's not, hey, it should have been a dynasty. It, nobody cares how the bad guys won if they didn't win. Then they just would have been, oh, remember those guys. And that's how quickly things change. And it's why when you get to those moments, the teams who are able to finish it off, they have those special memories like we have with 86 and with Gary Carter at the top of this list. Brian, always a blast, man. I appreciate this. Everybody give Brian a follow at Brian Wright 86. We'll do this again as we go on throughout the offseason, man. Always fun to get together. 
Yep, always great, Casey. Thanks so much. For all of you, stay on board the Unfiltered Revolution. Let us know what you think of the list and tweet us at Casey Stern at BrianWright86 and get with us along the way. As always here on Unfiltered, we are presented by our good friends at Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.